All right, so we are in week three, and the design of this series is unique in that sometimes we go through a book of the Bible and we just kind of bring out application each week. Here's what it says, here's what it means, and here's what we should do. But we figured we'd try something because many of us read the Bible and don't get as much out of it as we'd like to, that the beginning of every one of our teachings, we throw something, a little bit of background, a little bit of history to help you learn how to learn. Uh, getting out of the Bible, getting truth out of the Bible is something that we learn to do. And so what I want to do tonight is to build on just some background material we've been talking about on how to think about the Psalms. So just to catch you up, if you're new, the Psalms aren't a, ra a random collection of poetry, a random collection of ancient songs. There's 150, but they're put in order for a reason. And over the last few weeks, we saw that there are, uh, it's one book, but it's put into five books. If you read Psalm 1, 1, you realize there are five books. It says book 1, and then Psalm 1 to 41. Then book 2, verse, Psalm 42 over to 71, I think. And then book 3, and then book 4, and book 5. So they've been collected into sections, subsections, for a reason. I never thought about that before, but that's the way the Psalms work. Now, last week we talked about what tied them together. There's this phrase, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, at the end of each uh, collection that created a new book. And so we saw what, what connected all the dots. But what about the themes? What is the story of the Psalms? So before we get into Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, which we'll do tonight, I thought it might be helpful just to take a step back. And if you want to know what the Psalms are all about and where, where they lead us, we're going to see it by the themes in the books. What does that mean? The first 72 Psalms, book 1 and 2, are about one actual major theme. It's the theme of conflict. So let's just throw that up. If you were to read Psalm 1 through 72, which if you're reading through on the plan that we gave you, you're in the mid-40s right now, you realize that a lot of them have to do with trouble. Most of them are ascribed to uh, David, King David. But at the same time, you realize he seems to be in trouble a lot, right? And now, now notice, they weren't written in this order, but they were collected and put together in sections. The first half of the Psalms are supposed to let us think that there is trouble, there's conflict, there's heartache, and, and we see it. Psalm 3 Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And psalm after psalm, we get this recurring sound. By the end of this entire section, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. I need help is what he's saying. The king and his son needs help because we are in trouble, we're in trouble, we're in trouble. And what we're going to see is the psalms are like the cycles that we go through in life. We find ourselves in trouble, in heartache, with struggle quite often. That's why almost half the Psalms are about heartache. But then it moves. If you're reading, and we'll get to it in a few weeks, uh, book three, it moves to even darker Psalms. If you think you've seen heartache, Psalm 73 to 89, uh, the theme of it is crisis. It moves from David the king having trouble. And these Psalms, we believe, were written in a time that Israel was taken out of their land because of their sin and rebellion, and God moved them over, and the Babylonians took over, and they're now not living in the land, and they're under the Babylonians, and they've been moved out, and they've been crushed. Israel has no king. There's no more King David and his sons. They have no land. They have no temple. It is in the pit of despair. Psalm 73 to 89 give us that tone. So it goes from conflict, struggle, all the way to crisis. What do we do? 
Where's God? Wait a minute. God gave us the land. God gave us the temple. God gave us a king. And now it's all gone. So, oh God, why have you rejected us forever? They feel the angst. They're 70 years apart from the land and apart from the temple. And by Psalm 89, remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of the nations. They're not ruling themselves. Now the Babylonians, now the Assyrians, the other armies have routed them. They're totally destroyed and demolished. The taunts, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. So the anointed one is the king. So there's no more leader. There's no more land. There's all of this heartache and sorrow. So, so crisis, I'm sorry, conflict leads to crisis. What do we do when there is no king? Now, it flips out the other side and they move from crisis to the answer. If we read, and when we read through the Psalms, the tone changes by Psalm 90. And you start to see like a little bit of hope. They, they realize there is a solution. The king's been in trouble. Now the king is gone. We've totally been destroyed. But, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. So Psalm 90, it begins to change. And what we're supposed to see is that in my struggle, in my conflict, and then in my crisis, when I feel like God is gone, I need to remember that God has been with me before. So what are they going to put their hope in? Save us, O Lord, our God. Gather us from the nations, Psalm 106, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. What happens here is the people of God, as they read the Psalms, struggle, conflict, crisis. There seems to be no hope. Put your hope in that God is still king. This is huge. When we read the Psalms, we're supposed to not put our hope in David, not put our hope in a man, not put our hope in an army, not put our hope in finances or in chariots or anything that I can tangibly hold on to. I am called in the Psalms to put my hope in God. God is faithful and God has been with our people in the past. If I look at the trail of God at work in my life, now in my moment of crisis when it seems like there's no hope, I need to remember my life is out of control, but God is still king. And because God is still king, and he's been with me in the past, I can trust him now. So how do Psalms end? Book five. By the time we get to the end of the series, we're going to be in book five, that the, there's only one rightful response. And it starts in Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is what? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is what? He's good. His love endures forever. Now, when you're reading this, mind you, when you're reading this, there, say this is the time of Jesus. You're in Jerusalem. You've been brought back to the land, but there is no king, and the temple isn't what it's supposed to be, and it feels like God has not delivered us. So at the time of Jesus, you're reading these Psalms, and you're giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. In my struggle and conflict, when I hit my crisis, the solution is to remember that God is king, and because God is king, the only right response for me is to praise his name. So by the end, Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That is an overview of the Psalms. You start with this conflict and struggle, crisis. The solution is God is still in control and therefore his people should praise his name. So if you've seen Psalms as a random collection, hopefully you've written it down and that framework will guide your reading of the Psalms. Now, all of that was just to help us see the big picture. But where are we now? Psalm 22. Let's get into it. Psalm 22 is where we're going to spend our time 
tonight and then touch on Psalm 23. Most of us know Psalm 23 well. Here's what I'm going to do. Psalm 23, I've read with a certain lens. So we're going to spend almost all of our time in Psalm 22. Because like we saw last week, these are not random songs. They're connected. So Psalm 1 and 2 is the introduction. One is wisdom. I need to follow God's teaching, God's way, God's instruction. And I need a king, Psalm 2. If I'm led by God's wisdom and I'm led by God as king, then I will be wise and I'll make it through my crisis. Psalm 22 and 23 are connected in ways I had never seen before. So let's just begin, um, and we'll re- we're going to read the whole thing, but we'll do it in parts. Let's go. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out uh, by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I will find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises in our ancestors, and you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. This psalm begins with the king. It says it's a psalm of David. He is utterly alone and does not know what to do. Uh, God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And he's like, you've been with us in the past. Our people have put their hope in you, but right now we are utterly destroyed. And sometimes in life, this is where we're going to find ourselves. We don't know why what happened happened. And if God is real and Jesus is all that he says he is, then why am I? And then you can just fill in the blank. At this point, the psalmist feels alone. David feels like he's been rejected by God and he does not know what to do. Look at verses 2 and following. Uh, My God, I cry out you by day. You do not answer. In Hebrew, the word you is emphatic here. So I'm going to say you louder, but you do not answer. By night, I'll find no rest. Verse 3, yet you, like pointing the finger at God, are enthroned as the Holy One. So you're like supposed to be in charge. You are the one that Israel, your people, Praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. So he's putting the finger like back at God. God, why have you forsaken me when you're the one that's supposed to lead me? David's the king. He's in charge. He's to oversee the people. He's supposed to be the one that people look to for help. And he's like, don't look to me for help. I don't even know where God is in this situation. And you may not be there tonight, but know this. If you choose to follow Jesus, you will have moments when Psalm 22 makes total sense. When you look at your life and your circumstances and you're like, I don't get it. I do believe that there's a God, but why am I struggling and why do I feel like God is so far off? Now let's just keep reading. What does he feel like? Verse 6, but I am a worm. How's that for a descriptor? I'm a worm. I mean, think of the picture. What, what, what does a worm look like? Pretty? Not so pretty. No. And what is a worm doing? It's wiggling its way through dirt. And that's what he feels like. He's like, I'm a worm, not a man. And what does that look like? I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But what's the psalmist going through? Yet, 
you brought me out from the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. But from birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So the, the imagery here is that he feels like he should be a man. He should be in charge. But I'm a worm. I'm scorned. I'm mocked. I'm rebuked. God, I'm the king. I'm in charge. And yet it feels like life has spiraled out of control. What does he do in this moment? Look again at verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. So in a struggle, and this is like, this is helpful. It's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to not be okay. But how does he respond? The king says, but God, I feel this way, but you're the one who brought me out of my mother's womb. I'm only here because of you. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From, it's, it's poetry. From the time I was a little kid, my parents taught me about God. And since I was a little one, I've seen your hand. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Since I was a little one, David says, I, I've seen your hand at work, but this just doesn't make sense. So he cries out, verse 11, don't be far from me. For trouble is near and there's no one to help. So what do we do when we don't know what to do? Uh, the psalmist doesn't go to his friends. He goes back to God and says, God, I'm counting on your faithfulness because right now I don't know how I'm going to get out of this mess. Now what's his mess? Verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Again, it's poetry. He's not like in a Spanish ring. You know, like this isn't a little weirdness. Although that move, I must confess, was a little strange. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Again, we're reading a psalm, we're reading visual pictures, poetry. He's like, there are bulls and lions. Are those like happy-go-lucky, like little domesticated dogs and cats? Or No, no, he's like, he's picturing the worst people are out to get me. Strong leaders are out to get me. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. A man is stable, full of substance. What does he feel like? Liquid. Again, it's poetry. He's like, water, you just part and it rolls out, doesn't hold together. Um, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Picture that one. My heart, which would be strong, is turned to wax. It's like melted. It's melted within me. Again, it's poetic language. He's saying, I have no hope. I feel weak like water running out. I'm surrounded by bulls and lions ready to kill me, and my heart, it's melted. I have no confidence. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, whatever that is. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So he's just painting this vivid picture. I'm beaten up in every way. They've pierced me. My heart's melted like wax. And now he's a king, and he gives a little clue. My, my, um, my spoils, my clothes, they've been, they've, my, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. He's the king. The king's in charge. But what happens when one king defeats another king? They take the spoils. So picture a military campaign, and David feels like he's been defeated already because they've cast lots for my garments. They've taken his crown. They've taken his royal robes. They've taken his money, and now the opposing army 
has come in against him and they've won because they're taking all of his goods and the king is stripped of all of his goods and now his enemies have won and he has nothing to show for himself. So he feels completely defeated. It's like a Monday morning, you know, like, oh Lord, here we go. Um, But you, verse 19, Lord, do not be far from me. You're my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. So it goes from bad to worse. And again, it's vivid imagery. He uses all these animals and these wild beasts to describe. These aren't animals that are after him. It's people that are out to get him. And he feels opposed on every side. And if you have ever felt like your back is just against the wall, and whether it's a relationship that's going south, whether it's a job that's going nowhere or you can't find one, and you feel like everyone has like come against you, and, and you don't know what to do in your heart, which should be strong, is melting like wax. And instead of feeling solid, you feel like water that's being poured out and you don't know what to do. You are just like the psalmist here. And, and now if these verses, though, sound familiar, uh, they, they cast my clothing with lots. My God, my God, why are they forsaken me? Let's take a step back. We've seen most of the psalm, and it's, is this a chipper psalm? No, no, there's nothing... This is, this, is, this is David on a bad day gone worse. But also, we need to see the big picture. Psalm 22 does sound familiar because while it is written hundreds, if not a thousand years before the time of Jesus, it's quoted by Jesus and it's about Jesus. So we're going to go back to Psalm 22 in a second. But how is this? In the crucifixion of Jesus, Matthew 27 and also in Mark 15, we see Jesus all over the psalm. Again, our goal is not just to read the psalms, but get the big picture. And like we saw, we go from conflict to crisis and utter despair. There is a solution, and the solution is my response is to praise and look to God even in my worst moments. So Matthew, if we could throw it up, Matthew 27. When they had crucified him, Jesus, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Sound familiar? It's exactly from Psalm 22. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And two rebels are crucified with him, one on his right, the other on his left. Those who passed by, and here's another Psalm 22. They hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. David in Psalm 22 is talking about everyone throwing insults and mocking him. And the same thing happens of Jesus. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Just like David's being taunted in Psalm 22, Jesus is being taunted on the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they all mocked him. And then, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? So what we want to see tonight, okay, Psalms are all about David. Centuries before Jesus, he is the king, and he's going through conflict and struggle, and he's hit a massive crisis in his life. What does David do? We're going to read it in a couple of minutes, Psalm 22 in the end, 
and Psalm 23. But before we do it, at the same time, this psalm is all about Jesus. What David is doing is in his own experience and is speaking to things that are about to come. And David doesn't even know it in his fullness. But what is written in the Psalms is not just ancient history. It is about what God is speaking that is going to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, verse 1, that, that phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in doing that, it doesn't mean Psalm 22, verse 1 is about Jesus. It implies that the entire movement of what's happening is all about the Messiah. So before Jesus comes, the Psalm 22 is written pointing ahead about what is going to happen in the future. And now we read it on the other side. We see Jesus and what he did, but we want to learn how to find ourselves and what do we do with the Psalm. So Psalm 22, how does Jesus respond from the cross. And I say that because the cross hasn't happened yet back in Psalm 22, but we see it. So go back to Psalm 22, and we're going to read the response. Jesus is suffering on the cross, and Jesus feels alone. Jesus had insults thrown against him. And how does he respond? Because in my opinion, all of Psalm 22 is pointing ahead towards Messiah. How does Messiah respond? Verse 22. Of Psalm 22. I'll declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you, all you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. In the middle, hear this, of the struggle and the crisis and the heartache, David before Jesus, and then Jesus in his fullness. And I'm going to suggest later on, you and I, what do we do? How do we respond? In light of our conflict, in light of the crisis, the solution is to point your gaze upward and look to God. Don't look to your friends for help because they can only do so much. Don't look to yourself for help because only you could do so much. But put your attention back on God. And that's what the psalmist does. To you, Lord, I look up. Now verse 23. You fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then later on in Psalm 22, the psalmist says, God has heard our cry. So on the cross, Jesus does not rebuke the people rebuking him. Rather, he says, Father, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. On the cross, Jesus could say to his disciple, John, John, this is your mother, Mary. And Mary, this is your son, John. On the cross, Jesus is suffering and dying. In his worst moment, because he's found hope in his God, he can give praise to God and not leave and die abandoned. And I'm here to remind you that in our struggle, in our heartache, in our suffering, we're to take the pattern of King David, Psalm 22, and the pattern of Jesus in Matthew 27, and in our darkest hour, turn your attention back on God because he has listened, verse 24, to your cry for help. From you comes, verse 25, 26, the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I'll fulfill my vows. 
The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So, so David feels defeated by the other kings, but in the end he comes out and says, wait a minute. No, God's heard my cry, and God rules, and God rules over the nations. Uh, verse 29, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will near before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So the psalm just moves. If, if poetry is new and the psalms are brand new, it's moved from dark to darker. And they feel like they're in the pit of despair and the lions and the oxen and the animals are all around him ready to pounce. But then he puts his hope in God and he's like, God, no, you've heard me and you're the God over the nations and I'm gonna get out of this. Because he says future generations will be told about the salvation of God. So David, in his experience, recognized that even though there's trouble and heartache and sorrow, the solution is put my hope in the faithfulness of God the king. The creator is still the king, and he is my God, and he'll deliver me out. And as I praise him, I have nothing to fear because I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to move past this, and future generations will know that last phrase in there, Psalm 31. He has done it. God's done it. Interestingly enough, John 19, Jesus on the cross, the last thing that we know that he says before he gives up his spirit, he says, it is finished. Not an exact parallel phrase, but I think a similar idea. That it's done. And Psalm 22 ends with victory. God has done it. And on the cross, Jesus says in his final breath, it is finished. God has done it even through me. So Jesus and the cross, Psalm 22. But you may be saying like, how in the world do you get there? And what does this have to do with Psalm 23. Now, in light of that, I said most of our time is going to be in Psalm 22 because these two Psalms are connected. Let's just read verse 1 of Psalm 23. It's the most familiar Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Just flip back to Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Psalm 22 speaks to us about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's what he, it's what he calls out on the cross. It's clearly about his suffering. But Psalm 23 is about what happens after the suffering of Jesus. Whenever it's Psalm 23, I just see me. I'm going through a dark time, and God's going to take me through the valley. Uh, or it's David going through his worst nightmare and God takes him through the valley. But I just want us to see that before we apply it to David, before we apply it to ourselves, we need to um, apply it to Jesus. Because the Messiah is the one who's going to go down in the grave and suffer. But at the same time, what does the Messiah see as his hope? Let's read it again. Psalm 23.1. Think of it in, in terms of Jesus for a moment. Jesus saying, the Lord is 
my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The Messiah who's to come, we know him as Jesus. In the middle of his darkest hour can cry out, I have nothing to worry about because my father who sent me is going to guide me through. Shepherd is referenced all throughout the Hebrew scriptures as the king. So David is called the shepherd of the people Israel because David is a king. A shepherd is a king. And so the Messiah says, Yahweh, my, my father, he is the king. And the king will guide me. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes or restores or renews or brings back to life my soul. And I think Psalm 22, if we read it in its context, is speaking yes to our situation. We'll get to that in a minute. But before it's to us, it's, it's forward to the Messiah. When Messiah comes, he's going to suffer like no one else has suffered, but he's going to find that his hope is in his Father, the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd is going to lead Jesus through quiet waters and quiet streams and green pastures, and he's going to renew or restore or restore or bring to life his soul. I think we see here a hint of the resurrections to come. Now remember when Jesus, who was steeped in the Hebrew scriptures and knew the Psalms by heart, knew his story was death and resurrection. And Psalm 22, the theme of it is when God is silent, when it feels like you're going to die. But the theme of Psalm 23 is when God is your shepherd. And when God is your shepherd, he will bring you through. He guides me along, middle of verse 3, the right path for his namesake. So even though I walk through the darkest valley. Now immediately I jump to my scenario. What's my darkest valley? What's my, my biggest trouble? What's my, what's my most tempting? Uh, tempting sin or whatever my issue is. But I think that as Jesus is reading this before he goes to the cross, he knows what the darkest valley is. The darkest valley is Psalm 22. The darkest valley for, for the Messiah is that he is going to suffer for the sin of the world, but he's also going to bring hope to the nation. So even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. The people around him, Jesus, and they're mocking him and they're literally killing him. I'm not going to fear evil for you are with me. So Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even then, Jesus in his darkest hour knew that God heard his cry, why have you forsaken me? And he could cry out Psalm 23, you are with me even in this. So in one sense, Jesus is alone on the cross suffering for the sin of the world. But at the same time, he's never out of step of communication with his father and all of this, we'll get to it, will have to do with us and how we respond in our suffering. But before the Bible is about us, the Bible is about God and His Son, Jesus. Psalm 22, deep, dark valley, death is going to happen. Psalm 23, I have nothing to fear. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord is my shepherd. I will be in want of nothing. Do you see the contrast there? So Jesus on the cross can experience both the emptiness and lowliness of suffering, and at the same time experience the power and the presence of his Father. I'm here to remind all of us, as we apply this to our own soul, we get both experiences as well. You can be in a state where you feel like, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if that's here tonight, you feel alone, you feel like God's abandoned you, you feel like you've been rejected, you feel like you, you have no hope, 
read Psalm 22, but also read Psalm 23 together with it. In your moment of feeling that you've been forsaken, don't you forget for one moment that the Lord is your shepherd and you have nothing to want. God will be with you. Verse uh, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. The implication here is Jesus go, goes through death, Psalm 23, but he goes through resurrection, Psalm 23, and now Jesus is not in a grave. The lions haven't eaten him. The bulls have not crushed him, crushed him, but rather he's alive. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. That's an interesting phrase. Who is anointed with oil throughout the Hebrew Scriptures? Who's anointed with oil? The kings, those who are in authority, God's messengers, the priests, those who have God's authority, representatives between God and man. The king and the priests are the ones who are anointed with oil. And this is about, it's about you and me, sure. It's about David, sure. But it's about Messiah. Messiah is going to be the one that everyone's going to see after his death, through his resurrection, People are going to see that he is the king. And there's a table spread before him in the presence of his enemies. They mock Jesus. They kill Jesus. But one day, Psalm 23 points, Jesus is going to come out of death. And through the resurrection, even his enemies are going to know that Jesus is alive. So my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in your house forever. I'm going to dwell forever. Jesus, the Messiah, comes out of death and through the resurrection, he's now the king and his enemies were before him, but there is a table and he is in charge and he is ruling and he's going to dwell in God's house forever. So before Psalm 23 is about you and me and David, it really is about Jesus. And Jesus will go through real suffering and real heartache and real loneliness and Jesus will experience the presence of his Father through it. And yes, he will die the death that you and I deserve, but we see the power of God in his life, and by the Spirit he is raised to life, and now he's seated at the right hand of God, and he's exalted, and there's a table spread out before him, and in the presence of his enemies, Jesus now rules and reigns as the king of the universe, and ain't that good news. That's good news. Now, let's, let's think through, okay, so that's Psalms. We've gone through this background in history, and we've seen Psalm 22 about Messiah, Psalm 23 about Messiah. Now, where do I get that? Because you might be saying to yourself, Jose, like, did you just make this up? This is about David, but this is about Messiah. This is exactly how the church saw it from day one. Jesus taught his disciples the scriptures, and we know that Peter's first sermon, let's just look at it on the screen, Acts chapter 2, I want you to see this. When Peter, who is one of the earliest, closest followers of Jesus, is reading the Psalms, he sees Jesus in them. Because in his first message, when the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born, he quotes to the people Psalm 16, and he says, Psalm 16 is about Jesus. And so after quoting Psalm 16, he says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David, the great king, died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a what? What is it? What was he? Prophet. Now, okay, let me ask a trick question. Was David a prophet? No. David was a king in Israel. And is a, he's a king who wrote inspired by God. And that's where Jesus connects the dots. When David writes the Psalms, they're not just about human kings. 
The story of the Psalms is the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus in our conflict. It's the story of Jesus in our crisis. It's the story of Jesus as the solution. It's the story of Jesus as the one that we should praise and worship and adore. Because David is a prophet pointing forward, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would see, uh, he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come. This is, this is crazy. Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Is that not wacky? David, hundreds, a thousand years before Jesus, somehow, by writing the Psalms, was pointing ahead to the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. We want to learn to see the, Messiah, uh, the Psalms as not just an ancient book of poetry or these emotional words that we can connect with, but actually as prophetic books pointing ahead to the work of Jesus. Now, is every word in every psalm pointing about Jesus Christ of Nazareth? No. There are psalms about kings and about experiences. But when you take a step back and you look at the entirety of the psalms, you realize because from Peter and every church leader after him, Paul quoted from the psalms, the psalms throughout the New Testament are the seedbed of pointing ahead to what was the work of Jesus. So we see Jesus in the Psalms. That's why when we read the words of Jesus, we sometimes don't see that Jesus was influenced and connected with the thoughts in the Psalms. Let's look at John 10. Before we apply this to ourselves, look at John 10. Super famous, just like Psalm 23 is super famous. It says, Jesus says, I am the good what? Okay, shepherd. Does that sound familiar? Again, the Psalms are all about Yahweh, the creator God, as a shepherd. And Jesus, whose mind is steeped in the Psalms, who's memorized the Psalms, connects the dots. Those Psalms, those words, those visuals are not just speaking about the creator in heaven. It's speaking about me. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Throughout the Psalms, we get this picture of God coming and meeting his people in their crisis, in their struggle. And the psalmist David crying out to God, God, help me. And Jesus is connecting himself and saying, I am the shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. I will not have any want for anything. And Jesus is saying, not a direct quote, but the visuals speak to the Psalms. I'm the one, and I lay down my life. I give myself. I come to those in crisis, and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I'm in control. Nobody killed Jesus without Jesus giving himself. Jesus is a king, and he has all power and authority. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So the Psalms are about David and about the kings, yes, but the Psalms are also about God at work in his son Jesus. So the Psalms point ahead to the work of the Messiah, and when we read the words of Jesus, we should read them in the context of the Psalms. And the language and the imagery that we see here, Jesus picks up and he makes them concrete. So Yahweh is my shepherd, I don't need a thing. And Jesus says to you and to me, I am the good shepherd. 
and I'm going to care for you, and I am going to lay down my life for you. Isn't this good news that in our moments of struggle and in our temptations and in our feeling of inadequacy, all we need to do is like the Psalms, conflict, trouble, struggle, crisis. The solution is to remember that God is king and that he has worked in the past and he will not forget me. And so the end of the Psalms is I need to praise this God who does not leave his people alone in suffering, but he brings us from death to life. And in light of the big picture of the Psalms, when I think of the work of Jesus, I'm more enamored and want to praise him all the more because the good shepherd has not left me alone. But he saw me in my sin and he saw me in my wickedness and he saw me in my rebellion. And before I was born, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, he came and he suffered and he died and he rose again. And now he is the king and there's a, there's a table set before him and he rules and reigns and his enemies are there and no one can come against Jesus because he's now the king of the universe. And in his resurrection, he comes to us in our moments of struggle and pain and says, I will take care of you. Now, a couple of ways that we can apply this because so far a lot of this has been about the head. Psalms are about David, it's about Jesus, it's about the king, but it's about the Messiah. But when I read it, and I see this emotional language, and I read Psalm 23, and I think about my own valley and my own pit, what can I walk away from, and what can we walk away from tonight? A couple of thoughts as we move our way towards worship and the table. Uh, number one is that God knows what you're going through. Uh, this hasn't been an academic exercise Psalm 22 is about the worst scenario that a person can, can be going through when you feel like God's gone and everyone's against you and there's no hope. And as a, as a teaching team, one thing that we try to do, and I hope it comes across, is that whenever we share something, we have a, a teaching principle that we call you share the scriptures through your life. And that's, this is what that means. Whenever we prepare something, we want to share it through the filter of what God has been doing in our own soul. So if you've been around for a while, you've heard lots of Jose and Carmen stories, and that's on purpose uh, because we want to share not just what God has said, but how it's impacted our world. So as you look, you look at your world, you see that God is a God of hope. So we've shared about the struggles that we've gone through. Uh, I've shared multiple times about how Carmen and I couldn't have kids and dealt with infertility for a long time. And why share that? Because in a sense, that's our Psalm 22. That was our Psalm 20. God, God, why, why I want a family and it seems like you won't give them to us. And then I've shared the story multiple times about when God did bless us and, and Carmen did conceive. We had Jonah. And before we had him, how we took this medical test, this normal test, and they saw something on there and they took another test and saw a spot on his brain and how the genetic counselor that you need to see said to us the number of struggles that Jonah would go through mentally and physically and and that it probably we ought to consider an abortion because he's not going to have a normal life and he's not going to live very long. And that's our Psalm 22. Like I, when I read Psalm 22, I can think of like real stuff. And we shared openly that um, when God seemed to move us back to Portland, we lived in Charlotte and just built a home and put it up for sale to move back here to serve the church and be a part of this community and, and how it just went south. The, the housing market tanked. And our house that was worth a lot just like, and we couldn't sell it. And we tried to sell it for years and ended up having to give it indeed in lieu back to the bank because it would not sell for what we owed on it. 
And I, Psalm 22 is about when you hit a financial you know, hardship and you don't know what to do next. We talk about not just the good things, but we talk about the struggles because we're all in a Psalm 22 season at some point in our life, aren't we? But I want you to read Psalm 22 now in light of Psalm 23, that they're connected. And when you feel forsaken by God, you can cry out to God as your shepherd because God knows what we have gone through in our story and God knows what you're going through right now. And so you don't have to feel despondent about the God who's far off. Yes, those feelings are real and it's okay to feel them. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to question. But you got to read Psalm 23. And if you're a person who knows Jesus or enough about him, you can call, you can call on him as a good shepherd who loves you and cares for you. And Jesus said, I sacrifice myself for my sheep. I love them. And you need to know that God is not against you and not distant, but he's actually for you. So yeah, sometimes we feel like God's alone, but the second thing I want you to get is that God is faithful. We see it in Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. 22 ends with a, a note of victory. In the future, your story will be told of your salvation. Psalm 23 ends in total victory. There's up and there's down and there's down and then there's up. But in God, you need to know that your circumstances won't always pan out the way you want. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not, if you follow Jesus, everything will be okay. You don't get that. That is not Jesus' promise to you. But his promise to you is that I will be with you till the end of the age. Till the end of your life, Jesus says, I will be with you. So yeah, infertility is a real thing. And financial collapse is a real thing. And difficult decisions are a real thing. All of these things are real. But Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 are to be read together. And my response is to be, Lord, you are my shepherd. You're my king. I don't need anything because I have you. And tonight, I just wanted you to be reminded from the Psalms that God is faithful throughout history. And if you don't feel like he's been faithful to you, you just need to immerse your mind in God's faithfulness. You have an historical record of God's faithfulness to people who lived before you. And you just need to connect with other followers of Jesus who, who have been walking with him for a while and hear their story of God's faithfulness. Not things working out according to plan. I'm not saying things work out according to your plan. But I am saying that God knows your struggle and he will be faithful to you. His faithfulness may look different than you would expect or hope or dream, but his faithfulness is exactly what you need and exactly what I need. And finally, I think that in reading Psalm 22 and 23, in light of Jesus, we see that in Jesus, uh, we're going to walk through the valley and experience resurrection. Because in the end for us, there, Jesus said, you will in this world have plenty of trouble, but you can cheer up. You can be a good cheer because I've overcome the world. And there's nothing that Jesus cannot handle and there's nothing that Jesus cannot change and there is no dead situation that Jesus can't infuse his resurrection, resurrection life into. And so it's never the end. It's never the end. Because even if this life ends, let's just be real, even if this life ended for you tomorrow, if you're in Jesus, you get resurrection. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the king. And so for us who follow Jesus, we read the Psalms not with an air of despondency and like, oh no, this is a downer. We read them in context. 
We read Psalm 22, and then we read Psalm 23, and we realize that God will get us through, and he'll be faithful. And in Jesus, because you're in him, you can experience both the valley and the resurrection. And so tonight we want to respond. I don't know where you're at. And for some of you, you're in, a, you're in a high time in life. You're like, Jose, this is a great little speech, but this has nothing to do with my world. Thank God. I, 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 I praise God with you. But tomorrow's coming. <laughs> or next week or next month or, or next year or next child or next season. We are going to experience struggles in life. And that's why we love the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, we see that God is alive and God is present. And our God is a God of hope. So the Psalms are a book about Jesus, and the Psalms are a book of hope. 